This is the Cut the Check Podcast. Welcome to the UAC Podcast. Uh, This is Joseph Johnson with you as always. And I am joined by uh, my new friend and author, uh, Antonio Scalante, uh, who is uh, teaching and coaching uh, in Southern California, uh, originally from Italy. Uh, Welcome, Antonio. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Joseph. So for, for those who don't know, uh, cause this was a little bit new to me too. I, I, I knew who I knew your name. I knew that you had done some work in a couple of different places, but I didn't know anything in depth. Uh, when, when you first reached out to me, I just kind of knew cursory information. So if you would, uh, to, to our audience kind of introduce yourself, what, what's your background? Absolutely. I would love to do that. Uh, I was, I was born as a strength and conditioning coach mostly. So on the field. Uh, I did some uh, I did some work in Italy with a few different professional sports. Uh, I've always been very much oriented toward like everything that allows me to experiment with strength training. So sports that require a high level of strength and power, like rugby, American football, track and field. Uh, I coached in Italy for a while. Then I, I moved to the States. I coached for NCAA, so mostly football. Uh, and my last experience as a coach was at the at the 2016 Olympic trial for track and field. So that was like, I want to say almost the apex of my career as a coach, uh, mostly with throwers and um, and a few sprinters. And then at that point, I realized that, yes, I gained a lot of experience in uh, strength training. Uh, I'm very comfortable in the weight room. Uh, I'm very comfortable in the environment that we all practice in, which is pretty much NSEA-based kind of environment. Uh, I needed to, I needed to like, dig deeper into the science behind it. Also because I feel like I can possibly contribute more now to the future generations by using what I learned on the field and adapted and digested it with science. That's why I chose to like step back from exclusively coaching and go, bo- go back more into academics. So as a graduate student doing some research now, uh, anywhere from with lifting to plyometric to eccentric strength training, uh, my goal is primarily to, uh, I know it's kind, it's kind of cliche saying bridging the gap, but reality is more than just bridging the gap. It's digesting what we learn in the experience and make it stronger with what we gain from science. I think that's, if you were to like, re, like summarize my mission or vision, that would be it. So uh, coming from Italy had to be uh, a little bit different or culture shock. And, and I, we talk about this a lot. So, and, and I didn't. This is not a scripted question, but what's the what's the difference like when you come from from uh, Italy and you you got some of your education? I, I'm assuming a lot of it there first in your training. What was that like coming to the United States? It was it, it was an experience. Uh, just you, to, you 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 can be negative. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so I, I'll be honest. Like um, when I started in this profession. Uh, what you guys were calling strength and conditioning coaching in the United States of America uh, was completely a foreign concept in Italy. Like, it wasn't even a profession developed the same way it was developed in the States. So to begin with, when I was looking for, like, high-level evidence-based practice, uh, uh, even just, like, professional experiences, the United States has always always been, like, my point of reference. Uh, To the point that when I took my... um, my CSCS exam with the NSCA, 
they didn't they didn't have a form for me to sign up from Europe. I had to call in the middle of the night, register, <laughs> send all my paperwork, fly to Long Beach, take the exam, and then fly back to Italy. Wow. Because it wasn't even a thing. They didn't have NSCA Italy. Nothing was developed in Europe yet. Yeah. Now things are a little bit different, but like just to give you an idea, when I bought uh, the first book from your publishing company, I bought it through Amazon. It took me 45 days to receive it in Italy back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember so that. It's reward. Yeah. Yeah. And what I realized yeah. that, yes, I, of course, I was expecting uh, the level of uh, professionalism in the States to be much higher, and it is. Uh, what we do here is 20 years ahead of pretty much everywhere else I've been. Uh, however, what I can proudly say is that when it comes to just general broad education in the field of sports science, uh, there are things that I've learned in Italy through university as an undergrad student and grad student that I wish people would teach you in the States as well. So it's a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we definitely got some things to learn, especially on the coaching development side. Uh, we can do better for sure. And so, well, with that said, though, that's that's the whole point here uh, of, of you uh, being here and writing the book. So we got the new book uh, that we have yet to be published uh, probably in the next week or two is what it looks like. Uh, Power. Uh, tell me about it. Uh, I love to do that. Uh, so the book, uh, first of all, is a book that was born and meant for the American market. So it's very much attached to our like foundation of science and practice in, our, in this country. With that being said, the goal of the book is just to um, try to explain the difference between what we understand as strength training, which is a very broad concept that goes anywhere from the extreme of powerlifting and weightlifting to the domain of like fitness and rehab. So it's a very broad, broad concept to take what's good about strength training, but to adapt it to sports performance. Because after working for so many years in the field, training a jumper, training a soccer player, training a throwers, yes, you need strength training, but it's not the strength training that you would do with a weightlifter. It's not the strength training that you would do with a powerlifter. It's not the same strength training that you would do with a rugby player. Everything is different. So the goal of the book is to be able to uh, put into an understandable manner the difference between general strength training and strength training for sport. And the reason why I decided to call it power is because, as a matter of fact, when we work with athletes, it's not about how strong they are. It's not about how much they lift. It's about how powerful they can really be. And strength becomes just one member of the equation. It's not just all about strength. There are many more things you have to develop in an athlete, and ultimately it's the power output that determines how good an athlete actually is. So that's why the reason the name came out as power too, because that's the main focus of what I want to concentrate on. So you broke it down into in, in, into multiple areas, and there's been a and one of the areas that that I was originally kind of thinking when you brought the idea to me was uh, the velocity based training, and yes. that was something that Dr. Brian Mann has kind of elucidated a little bit more, and it was a concept. Uh, actually, that had originated in the Soviet Union quite a ways back. Oh, yeah. If you would um, give me a history on that, number one, like uh, how did that 
you know, the whole idea of the velocity based training. Because it was funny because when Brian wrote the book, it was fairly unknown here outside yep. of the translated text from, uh, I think it was Roman, if I'm correct. Yep. Yep. Uh, what's the history on that, on the development of power? And kind of like, I know that there was a time where the Russians were looking at strength, 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 you know, too, 60s, 70s. And then the, somewhere in the 70s, I believe, if I'm right, you correct me if I'm wrong, they started to look at that. You know, they said, we've got to, you know, that's not the be all to end all. There's more to this and we've got to do something different. Can you give me a history on that? Yeah. So um, I, I can I can almost certainly say that the first paper I've ever found to make a reference to velocity based training was published in uh, Bulgaria in 1968. OK. Wow. And it was done to use. As, as weird as it sounds, like we think that's a brand new thing, it's not. To use weightlifting movements such as the snatch or the clean and jerk uh, in the training of discus throwers. And the only reason why uh, velocity base came to be is because uh, as science evolved, and it evolved quite a lot due to the Soviet Union and the research they invested in, um, they realized that, in all honesty, uh, adaptation at the neuromuscular level um, is not really load dependent by speed dependent. So that, that was a concept that Carmelo Bosco quite often mentioned, like you can really name strength if you don't name what kind of speed you're moving at. They go hand in hand. It's something that we learned from like the heel curve, force velocity curve, all the way to the work that Margaria did, Vero did, Bosco did, Comi, like plenty of researchers so that they, they were able to define Okay, like strength matters and the overload matters because that's what creates adaptation. However, if you don't move the right load at the right speed, the adaptation you're going to get is not going to carry on into a better athletic performance. Just to give you the short version of it. Uh, I think that we, we did well uh, for a while um, learning more about this relationship between load and velocity. However, we got to a point, and that's kind of a trend of the industry has, has always been that way, where like it became all about velocity-based training. If you don't measure your speed, right. if you're not programming based on velocity-based training, you're not doing anything. In reality, right. doing traditional strength training or what is known as prescription-based training, where you prescribe the load and not the speed, or doing velocity-based training, where you prescribe the speed and the load becomes secondary, they're just far extremes of two approaches that should be used together. You should be able to control the weight. You should be able to control the speed and make them as coherent as possible with the level of adaptation you want to achieve. And that's something that I felt quite comfortable covering in the book because, you know, honestly, I use velocity-based training pretty much on everything I do. But that does not, does not mean that I always exclusively prescribe speed. I either use speed to prescribe the load or vice versa, but I always monitor both to make sure that adaptation happens in a very specific manner. And one thing that I kind of paid attention to myself, and I'm going to ask, I'm just going to throw some, maybe some weird questions at you, is that, like what you said, some things are, are more strength-based, and then some things are more, you know, obviously speed-based. So if you looked at, uh, you know, Olympic weightlifter, uh, the speed's involved, but strength is a huge part, powerlifting, it's only strength. Uh, and then if you look at other uh, sports where, uh let's say like maybe um uh even even like soccer for example there's a certain amount of quickness uh which is not necessarily even speed or power it's kind of lower down on that scale 
How do you differentiate uh, a little bit there when you're looking at, and I'm thinking right now like basketball where, you know, they really need to be explosive in the first one or two steps, really. And that's really going to be the key, you know, component. How do you look at that? Like uh, adjusting speeds accordingly to what the, what the objective is or how, or do you juggle speeds throughout the year? Does that, does that make sense? Totally. That's a great question. Uh, and that's what I actually try to do uh, when writing this book. So see, like, there are way many different approaches that someone can take to analyze sport, collect data, and use them to program strength training. However, and that's I'm not going to say that's the best way to go, but my way to go about it, uh, also because it's my training and my research area, is mostly biomechanics. And when you look at biomechanics of the movement, uh, there are two things that come in mind. The skill involved which in sport can vary, like you can go from like running, sprinting, changing direction, jumping, whatever the case may be. But each skill comes with a certain mechanical profile. And in mechanics, it comes down to be a trade-off between the time you have available to create force and the amount of force you need, which when we look at biomechanics, we're looking at ground reaction force and ground contact time. So those those are the two main variables that will will tell you for sure how much strength your athlete needs and how much speed they also need to generate to be able to be explosive. So the approach that comes out of this book, and I try to make it so that it's not too heavily on biomechanics because I want to be able to communicate with people that don't have a strong background in biomechanics. But I'm trained as a scientist, so I'm trained to be as objective as possible. And biomechanics gives you an objective approach to digest the diversity sport because sports are so many and so different. But then when you break them down to their fundamental skills and the biomechanics of that skill, you get numbers that you can use as a set point to make your educated decisions about, okay, how much strength do they need? How much spend do we have? How much time do we have to spend in developing just sheer strength? How much power they need? What kind of speed they need? Everything comes together when you start looking at sport in terms of biomechanics. And again, that's my opinion. Someone else might go by a more like muscle physiology approach, and that works as well. My personal opinion is mostly based on biomechanics. It's funny that you say that because that's been the same uh, way that I was trained. Uh, you know, Dr. Yes has been my mentor for 26 years. And, and, and in truth, like even with some of the other Russian scientists, they all, you know, transfer of training kind of was addressing that issue to whatever degree saying, look, you know, you can be strong in all these lifts and still suck at the, at the shot put or the hammer yep. throw. Um, and, and he had a lot of examples of that. I remember him, he told me personally that he had a, uh, they had a shot putter who could bench press 700 pounds, but he was like four or five meters off from being able to compete yep. at the world class level. So that tells you obviously then strength and, and that's a strength you know, more of a strength dominant sport. And even then it was, you know, the, it got carried away too much, I guess. So the the key is, is being able to execute or, or display that high level of power on a specific skill Yep, that's needed. So if you talk to like a baseball uh, player who's batting, the speed of the bat is a rate limiting factor for how hard he's going to hit the ball. Yep. Um, and just because you can bench press a lot does not mean that you can move the bat fast. Nope. At all. And, and and then and then there's a point where it actually would have a no- negative correlation, correct? Correct. I was definitely uh, 
very lucky to, first of all, being exposed to the Russian approach. Because uh, the first time, like in Italy, you start university when you're 18, 19-ish by the time you mm -hmm. graduate from high school. And I started studying as a biology major. Like I oh. wanted to go into biology before I changed to sports science. But I did want to go into biology with the goal of understanding muscle, muscle mechanics, and be able to apply that to sport. So my mom, uh, she retired now, but she was a French teacher, so she, she was into education. So the day I applied to school, she took me to a local uh, bookstore, and she offered to buy like one book that could lead me to my future career in sports science. And the book I picked was a book by Vertusansky. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> published in 1987, so the year I was born, and that was like early 2000. <laughs> but I got that in printing as my very first step into this profession. That's where I kind of shaped my way of thinking about things. Yeah. And I realized that, yes, it comes down to, it comes down to a question of skills. Skills can be very much sport-specific, but if you look at the like ontology of like movement development, skills go always, go always back to fundamental skills like running, jumping, throwing. There might be different variations, different combinations, but the way our body copes with mechanical load is always going to be the same. So once you can set a frame of reference that looks at the commonality between things and then branches out into specific application, that's the in my opinion, that's the best way to go. And biomechanics allows you to do that. So... And, and, and like I said, this has been exactly the stuff that I was raised on myself. And I, uh, I'm at the end of 26 years now, I think, with uh, Dr. Yeses uh, working in the field. And he always emphasized to me that, you know, the only thing that matters is what, how this benefits him as an athlete on the field. You know, if he doesn't run faster, he doesn't hit harder, doesn't kick further, whatever the case may be, it does none of it matters. Uh, none, none of the training. So you've got to look at the skill and then develop exercises that uh, will start to duplicate the skill. Now, that doesn't mean that it's exclusively that, obviously, yeah. but that's the fine point at the end. So in the beginning, the, the, you know, anything you do, as we both know, anything you do works. Yeah. General exercise doesn't matter. But as you get further and further along, it needs to get a little more specific. And ultimately, at the high level, it needs to get very specific. Uh, and in fact, like Dr. Bandarchuk would uh, say that, you know, with his throwers, the heavier and lighter implement was really, that's the main exercises. Yep. That's the ones that are yep. the most important uh, at that high level. So you're trying to uh, develop, the, having that biomechanical background, you're developing exercises that allow that. Now, the uh, other side or the, 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 the other side to the coin is then you also have to develop the muscular contraction correctly. Yes. That's the other part. So tell me how you do, like if you're developing exercises uh, for particular uh, movements, you, we, okay, we already know we're trying to duplicate some of the actions in parts and then sometimes in whole, um, you know, like a hammer throw, it's hard to do that in a part. You have to do the whole, you know, it's really hard to do that. Uh, other times, like with maybe like baseball batting, sometimes it's in parts because there's portions of it that are broken up into different joint actions. How do you, uh, how do you put the, how do you fuse that together and, and put together, you know, the, 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 the specificity along the specificity of biomechanics along with the specificity of contraction or yeah, for lack of a better word, muscular regime that uh, Yuri would call that. That's a great question. I think give you the short answer before we uh, expand the concept. I think the answer 
truly is periodization. That's how you approach training on the long term. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the book, we covered uh, the concept of conjugate method, which is something that um, in more way than other. What separates an elite, world-class athlete from everyone else? Their genes make them quicker, react faster, and more explosive. What if there was a way to, in a sense, turn on those elite athlete genes in the average person? Recent advances in genomic research and sports nutrition have proven this is now possible. Introducing Myosin by Nootromic Sport Nutrition. Multiple studies show it increases quickness, explosiveness, and strength. In most cases, your vertical increases by at least one inch an hour after it's taken. Through a proprietary blend of ingredients, Myosin in effect flips the switch on those genes that make you jump higher, run faster, and lift heavier weights. Here are several Myosync testimonials. This is Daniel Stokes. He's a sprinter. What was your best time before we started training this season with Myosync? Uh, 21.5. And what's your best time as of today? 20.7. Could you um, explain to us um, what the uh, the fast twitch muscle supplements done for you, Myosync? It made me more explosive. It helped with my reaction time off the ground, bring my knees up quicker, and I continually progress. This is Matt Tomey, head strength and conditioning coach for football and men's basketball at Michigan Tech. If you haven't tried Nootromic Sport Nutrition's supplement Myosync yet, you're definitely missing out. I've had athletes here um, try the supplement and really enjoy the benefits, uh, including an immediate improvement in vertical jump of about one inch. Myosync really stands out with its ability to improve power output, speed, reaction time, even potentially quick decision making. If you haven't checked out this unique supplement yet, uh, go ahead and pick up a bottle of Myosync and, and give it a shot and just see for yourself. Here is lead formulator Rick Jones' explanation of Myosync. Myosync evolved out of the neuroproteomic research we conducted starting back in 2005 uh, to uh, nutritionally boost the speed strength traits of well-trained athletes. These speed strength traits could include things like reaction time, starting power, uh, maximal speed, uh, quickness and agility, and also fine motor skills. Double-blind placebo studies, as well as many outcome studies, have been conducted on well-trained athletes from many sports and of many ages. The results of this research have shown a sizable boost in muscle contractions as well as the synchronization of these muscle contractions during speed strength activities. Other has become familiar recently in the world of powerlifting. Like I think that what really got the name out there, at least yeah. in the American community. Yeah, uh, but the way we think conjugate method in powerlifting, powerlifting is a very simple sport or activity where like you train and you compete with a bar. Yeah. So the skill that you use to train are the same skills that you use in competition. And weightlifting is very similar to some extent, yeah. more complex but very similar. In reality, so what you do there, you just combine dynamic effort method, max effort method, some work on hypertrophy, and it's pretty simple. But in reality, if we look back at the conjugate method, which was invented a long time ago, 
and was very much used by Berchowski in many of the Russian, the Bulgarian system was developed on the conjugate method. What you're actually conjugating, which means combining together, is skill and muscular conditioning. So you are at the same time, like you said, conditioning your muscles to create the amount of strength and power you need for your sport while you are supporting the learning and mastering of skills. So I think it all comes down to, you, to answer your question, you can't really translate every single skill into a propedeutic movement in the weight room. There are some skills that you just have to practice on the field, and there are some physical qualities that you can develop in the weight room. But as long as you do them in a conjugate manner, where the physical development is supportive to a better expression of sport-specific skill, that's where you really maximize the results, and that's where it all should be. So this has always been my thought on this, and I'd like to hear like your your how you look at that because I think this would be interesting. So the way I, I've, I've looked at it is, you know, in the in the younger stages, you're doing some general movements, light intensity, and just allowing them to get a little stronger. Uh, and then as they get further along, you know, we're, we'll start to use some specific methods, but they're more, um, they're specific, but they're uh, done for teaching. So the, the intensity is so light, it's just to kind of, master that motor skill that motor ability right and and to ingrain the neuromuscular pathway for that particular uh skill and then as time goes on as you get more specific there then you start to look at varieties of uh muscular contraction muscular regime Uh, you know so we'll go okay at at the beginning it's strength and it's light intensity and then the intensity starts to kind of come up uh and then we might look at it from uh well let's do it faster Maybe we're doing it, and then ultimately we're doing it with the the stretch shortening cycle uh, on that specific movement. Is that how you see that? Like how that evolves uh, from one end of the spectrum to the other, or lighter, heavier, and lighter? You know, if it's an implement, or maybe like with uh, team sports, maybe like with uh, weighted shorts, you know, weighted clothing. Uh, yes. That's the way I've kind of always looked at that. How what do you how do how do you look at that? I would strongly agree. To be honest, I think. Um... If you look at the continuum of a development of an athlete, uh, you, regardless of the age you start, you need to start by laying the foundations of just body literacy and like physical development, strengthen your muscles, strengthen your joints. And at that point, nothing can really be specific. You just need to incorporate as much as you possibly can to develop as much as you possibly can. Uh, then as you further progress toward more like a skill-based training, that everything becomes a function of what you need to achieve in sport. So everything becomes more specific to some extent. And then you get to the point where your skill is very well developed and you kind of go back to the basics, but at this point you pick them apart and you choose only what you need. And that's where you go and implement maybe just eccentric muscle training because all you want to develop is more muscle tendon stiffness. Or maybe you choose more velocity-based training because all you care about is the stretch shortening cycle. So it's kind of a U-shape where you go like everything is very general. Then you go to something that is more specific where you're actually building the skill and the physical development that an athlete needs. And then you go back to like where everything is back to be general but it's picked apart. And you yes. really focus on those little things that you need for your particular sport. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the way that uh, we, we did some work, Dr. Yeses and I did some work with a professional basketball player about 
17, 18 years ago. And, and uh, we, 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 that's exactly what we started doing. We started looking at every action that he, that he took on the court to see if we could duplicate them with different exercises. So, so Dr. Yessa started start using exercises, even plyometric exercises that duplicated a specific action. We were still using the depth jump as a center of, of the, the exercises, but there, we also used a collection of other exercises that used the stretch shortening cycle on a specific skill. And then we also had developed uh, heavier and lighter basketballs so uh, with a few ounce differentials and uh, slight enough so that the biomechanics didn't change, the technique didn't change in, in the actions. So then the, the basketball player could use different ball handling movements uh, and move the ball through faster, yep. you know, as a consequence. So that was kind of the continuum. We kept going towards that. And, and it sounds to me kind of like what you're, what you're talking about, same, same idea, uh, just continually and go back to the first question is like, uh, and Brian Mann has said this to me too, like it, it, when you first started with power training or velocity training, you might just use kind of a general 60% yep. rule, right? And just because it doesn't matter because it's going to work with everybody. Right. Yeah. And then as you get further along, maybe that if he's, you know, a basketball player, for example, maybe he might get down to 40, 30 percent because yeah. that might mimic more what he needs. Is that am I right? Absolutely. Right that? I agree. One percent. So. So the sequentially, we, we know that strength needs to be developed for sure. Uh, does it need to be beat to death of the way that we do it in the United States? I would assume you'd say no. Correct? No, correct. <laughs> How do you know? Because I get this question all the time. How do you know when an athlete, how do you know, look, personally from your experience, how do you approach the he's strong enough to start using power training? That's a very good question. Um, I do have a bit of a general like guideline or approach to it. Uh, first and foremost, I always look at uh, technique, uh, even before strength, because I've noticed that an athlete can be uh, physically, so to speak, ready to embrace more intense training uh, because maybe his squad or her squad is up to where he's supposed to be or whatever parameter used to decide that, but the technique might not be there. So first of all, I've always, I always look at skills, skill development, how comfortable an athlete is in the weight room and anything that comes with it. Um, however, my point of reference is always, first and foremost, uh, how strong an athlete is in the fundamental lift. So pretty much the back squat is my go-to for like every sort of assess assessment. So for an elite level athlete, and for elite level, I mean, any athlete after 18, 19 years old, uh, two times body weight in the squat is pretty much a gold standard to let them know that physically they have enough strength to be able to tolerate power training. But then again, it might come down to, yes, they're strong enough, but if you put them through a training program that uh, stresses more the stretch shortening cycle, they might not even be able to handle that because they're not quick enough to handle it. So I always look, uh, I always integrate squatting and jumping abilities and I read them at the same time to see where the gap is and where they are. And only when they kind of merge together and you can tell they're pretty much at the same level compared to like normative data or standard data then when it becomes okay now they're ready for more advanced training so how do you handle uh let, let's say you have an athlete and they're uh younger but they're strong strong enough uh theoretically um 
and you find out that they're because a lot of people said, well, you know, with higher level athletes, 60 percent almost always equated to, let's say, 0.8 meters per second, yeah. like right in that ballpark. What I found what I found with younger athletes is that 0.8 meters per second uh, typically was lighter. It was like 50 percent, maybe yeah. a little lighter than that. Even why is that? Well, there are many, many different reasons why is that uh, first and foremost, there are some biomechanical aspects of the musculoskeletal system that are different between individuals. And I think about like angle of penation, insertion of the tendons, like that might change and might increase variety between subjects. Uh, but also it comes down to a lot of uh, training age, like being able to move a weight at a certain speed is a so to speak, is a skill that you have to acquire. You have to train in a certain way to be able to expect a certain outcome. So it comes, it makes a lot of difference if you're working with an athlete that is used to train at a certain velocity and you're working with an athlete that is not. So yeah. if you don't test, assess, and retest, there's no way you will ever know what's the right way for the right speed. So it right. comes down to like designing the right training program for the right athlete because everyone is different. Would you would you initially let's say it's the very first time you're you're trying velocity type of training or power training with an athlete? Would you adjust it for the speed more than for the percentage? Yeah. So the way I go about it personally is just I let's say that I've never done any velocity based training with anyone, so it would be the first time. I put just an accelerometer on the bar and I do a normal test where I pick. I, I try to keep it as specific as possible for the movement. So if I'm if I'm entering a new program, I'll probably prescribe only one exercise for velocity-based training and get time to get used to it. So let's say the back squat, just for instance. Before the program starts, I do a, a testing session when I do incremental loads from uh, 20 to 80% of one rep max. Mm -hmm. And when I give the athlete a few reps to be able to get up to speed and I measure that speed. And then let's say that I'm just throwing numbers out there, but let's say that for the program, I intend to use a speed of 0.8 meter per second. And in the test, I realized that the closest percentage is 70%. I will start that athlete at 70%. And I will not change that weight until set after set, rep after rep, that athlete can move the weight at 1.1 1, 1 meter per second. And okay. then at that point, I will start using more a predictive model to like decide what to do. But the beginning, I will start with whatever the athlete is capable of doing and whatever force velocity profile he has or she has in one particular lift and then take it from there and evolve, evolve alongside with the athlete. So in the beginning, speed trumps yeah. the, the, the percentage in, in a general sense. Absolutely. So this is a way people can do this because I've heard, you know, I know that in some places, some coaches have used velocity based training at early ages, you know, in I would say early teenage years. Uh, I've seen that. And I always wondered about like, how did they determine, you know, how do you know that this athlete, he's younger? How do you know that he can move the load that fast? I always wondered about that. Um, so I thank you for answering. That was actually a question I had personally, um, <laughs> which, which I always throw my own little questions in here too, because I want to know. <laughs> sure. I, I got things I want to know too. Um, so, With all the material that's out there, we've seen different things that have been written on velocity. Dr. Main's written a great book, and we post that, and he's getting ready to do a new edition of it. You hear a lot of articles on it. You see a lot of talk. What's different about this book right here, Power? 
in, in the in the collection of 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 uh, publications already. What are we bringing to the table that's new? That's a great question. I think what I've tried to do personally is so like this is my opinion again. It's not like against anyone or anything that's done in the in the industry. Uh, if I put myself, I do a lot of teaching uh, for. Uh, Stana College, but also for the NSCA. And I realized that uh, if I put myself in the shoes of a new practitioner, a new strength and conditioning coach, where like I have a solid foundation of understanding of physiology, bioenergetics, I've learned everything is cool, but now I need to learn how to apply it. Mm-hmm. If I look at what is done on the field, everyone is so desperate to look different and be fancy and be known for something in particular. Yeah. And they just lose track of the basics and the fundamental things that you have to get in place before you can get fancy. Then once you gain the skill, once you become like a seasoned practitioner, do whatever you want. It becomes an art at that point because you have the science down to the T, so you know exactly what you're doing. But the beginning, I think, what's missing, it's a book, and I hope this book can be that book, that just shows you what's good and what always works with different athletes and what you can rely on based on science. So this is what we learn. This is what you can start from that. You can be as fancy as you want, take it from there and develop whatever style or philosophy of training you want. But this is the foundation and that's what works because as work for me as a practitioner, but also works in science to back it up. So I would say it's probably, I hope it to be, I I, I hope it's going to be, like one of those fundamental books that you use to go back and reference to, but that gives you an idea of like where you should start to be like spot on with what an athlete needs. And then from that point on, take it on and just develop whatever technique or whatever skill or whatever fancy way of training uh, you wish, but at least you get the foundation covered. And so, so the idea at the end is, is, is that, for you to ha- know what the tools are in your toolbox that are effective tools. And then, like you said, it becomes an art then because um, you're trying to apply those tools to a specific situation to elicit a specific response or outcome. And that's not always easy, as you know, and uh, and because you're trying to figure out this individual athlete who doesn't maybe fit the norm. Maybe he's an outlier. Maybe there's something different with them. Uh, I've had athletes who are so sensitive to volume, I have to cut it way back. And then I have athletes who are sensitive to something else. And you have to kind of figure out how they respond and you learn. With with this book, I wanted to, while we're talking about the tools. So so basically, I'm, and I'm looking right now at the book the, with the chapters, we looked at the mechanics of power in sport. We're looking at the maximum effort method. Yeah, uh, and this is kind of a lot of people are familiar with that idea from Louis Simmons, I think, Max, because yeah. he's kind of been the one that popularized that the repeated effort method. And by the way, this was also in Zatsiorski's book, 95. I think, Absolutely, that's the foundation of strength training. Yeah, that was like the, the, the one of the first books on that uh, subject, uh, repeated effort method, which is which definitely was his. And then you go into velocity based training uh, later in the book, and then you also uh, cover um eccentric training which is something i want to ask you about um and then uh uh functional hypertrophy which is also interesting and i think uh one that is misunderstood i think in the united states maybe 
as much as other stuff. I mean, it's hard to find which one's the most misunderstood because a lot of them are. But that's definitely misunderstood because uh, getting bigger for the sake of getting bigger can be counterproductive. It is. Uh, and we see this, you know, like if you see it like in uh, uh, like football, I guess would be a good example. And so, oh, you got to get weight on him. But there's different methods of getting weight on them. You know, a bodybuilding approach will certainly put weight on. Now, is it usable? Uh, is it, are they able to, to still move? Because yeah. uh, a lot of people presume that, okay, if we gain weight, then where it's a trade-off in his speed or his explosiveness, right? Uh, but you can have both, uh, and there's a way to do that. Uh, and it's mainly with the methods of training and kind of staying away from bodybuilding. So I definitely want to come back to that with you because I think that's going to be interesting in a, in, in, in a, in a future uh, podcast. Uh, and, then, and then also the power of, of uh, uh, the metric of power development, training volume for power development, uh, which is also uh, important. Explaining the conjugate method, which is another one that I want to come back to in another podcast, because I think this one's really misunderstood. I hear conjugate methods for powerlifting. Because uh, I, I hear po powerlifters talk about conjugate method. It, it doesn't seem to apply to me, but maybe I'm out in left field there. Yeah, okay, good, good, good. I'm glad to hear that. And then, and then the periodization ideas here, which is something else that I think is going to be interesting uh, for people with a velocity because I don't, uh, or power training, because that one hasn't been covered very well. Like what is the periodization model? What would that look like? Right. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Anatoly Bondarchuk has done a lot with the development of power as well. And his periodization models look totally different than yeah. a lot of other people's periodization models. Matter of fact, I've heard some scientists tell me, it's not even periodization what he's doing. I'm not really sure what he's doing. Yeah. But, but, you know, the, the, his track record speaks for itself. Uh, and, uh, and, and he's juggling a lot of these power methods in a periodized way. Uh, and uh, that's going to be coming out in his book, actually, next year that we'll do as well. I wanted to talk to you about eccentric training real quickly, uh, just as we give this an overview, because that's one that gets a little bit of talk. A lot of people don't really understand it very well. Uh, and to be honest with you, uh, it's probably one of the methods that I've, it's not that I've used the least, I've used uh, uh, eccentric training. I, a super maximal eccentric training is kind of a, it's a really powerful method. So you don't really run into a lot of situations where it's yeah. makes as much sense, you know, and, and you got to be kind of careful with it. Talk about that, if you would, just uh, briefly about, uh, the value of the eccentric training in the, in, in the cycles or and, and where you apply it at, like, you know, uh, what time of year and at what place in the athlete's career? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, first and foremost, I would like to, uh, so I see that the majority of misunderstanding about eccentric training comes from something as simple as the definition of what eccentric training really is. And that's pretty common even in the literature. There are articles that just refer to eccentric training, but they don't specify what kind of eccentric training are we looking at. The pure eccentric training by definition, and that's just muscle physiology and mechanics, it's not my definition. It's a training that is done with a load that exceeds your water max. It's a load that you can only lower down, you can you can overcome concentrically. That That's the real eccentric training. What we got accustomed to, because it's easier, 
because he's using physical therapy and rehab, because he's using in bodybuilding, is the sub-maximally centric training, which is nothing but time under tension. It's a movement that you can control, where you can control the concentric, you can control the eccentric, and it's done for one reason only, to get muscles bigger. It's an hypertrophy kind of work, which does not necessarily result in muscles that are stronger or more powerful. Supra-maximal eccentric training results in a level of adaptation that is much more functional. What you develop is not just a more active CNS that is going to recruit more fast twitch motor units and faster, but you also develop one thing that is always overlooked in, I want to say 90% of the strength and conditioning programs around the world, which is muscle tendon stiffness. Stiffness is not a bad thing. Active stiffness is something that muscles need to be able to store elastic energy and use it. The more you train that mechanism in the muscle at the tissue level, the more functional your muscle will be in a stretch shortening cycle. And that's what happens with supramaximally centric training. You're teaching your muscles how to store energy where they're lengthening so that when you apply that to a more ballistic explosive movement, your muscles know exactly what to do and what to do with that energy. So it is a very tough way of training. It's very taxing on the neuromuscular system. It's very taxing on the athletes. It results in lots of DOMs. Like it takes you out from a weight room for at least 48 hours if you do that correctly. And that's why. At least probably, yeah. yeah. And that's why very few athletes can handle that. And they can only handle that in the off season. But it's something that if it's done correctly, has the ability to change the force velocity profile of an athlete out and of itself just by adding eccentric training well done with weights above 100 max. So would and I don't want to get too deep into to, to the weeds on it because I think this is partly a good part of another podcast. But you, when you start with that, do you start low as you go super maximal, like just over 100 percent? Because I know it can go up to 140 percent. I'm assuming you don't go right to 140 percent, but I don't know what. How do you how do you look at that? How do you how do you ease that in? Like how do you introduce that into an athlete's training? It's all part of a continuum. So uh, I. My goal standard is the ideal load to start any form of strength training is about 80%. That's where you will, like, if you look at Carmelo Bosco, he says that's the minimum you have to use. It might be questionable. Maybe you can go down to 70, 75, you're explosive, 60. But as a ballpark, 80% is kind of the gold standard. So I usually start by, first of all, progressing an athlete to, like, a general linear approach where you slowly increase the intensity and decrease the volume as you approach the 80%. Then once you get to 80%, I start playing around with time under tension. So I do some training where it's more like two seconds down, one second pause, explode straight up. And one where I start to stretch the eccentric. I start to go to like four seconds, six seconds, eight seconds. Usually every time an athlete is capable of handling 80% at about six to eight second eccentric, I bump it up by 10%. So I, I go up to 90% and I start building again four seconds, six seconds, eight seconds. Once I get to that, I bump it up to 100%. And once an athlete gets to be able to manage 100% of load for two, three reps, for two, three sets with six seconds eccentric, at that point on, I add the super maximal aspect of it. So it's a gradual kind of introduction. It's a long progression. Because, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is the way I, we look at most everything, is that 
um, you want to use the slightest change or slightest increase to elicit the response as possible because you can't ever come back to that again. So if I went right to 140%, it's going to be hard to kind of challenge that again yeah. in, in the same way. And, um, and it might not even be that as effective if, it would, if we would have started like using the method that you just explained. You could ruin the athlete. I don't want to say ruin, but like Dr. Bandar Chuk says, if you use an, a, a, a method that's intense too early, he says you can't come back from it yep. because the nervous system takes it on an imprint that can't be undone. And so now you've kind of ruined that athlete's potential, if you will. I agree. Um, so, so that's kind of basically what you're articulating to me is start low and kind of ease your way into it. And then eventually you might get to 140, but that's going to be a while. It's not going to be right off the right off of the jump. That makes sense. I want to give you one other real quick one because I, I this one comes up too. It doesn't get talked about as much, uh, but uh, using altitude landings, uh, you know, at higher heights than you know what you would normally do a depth jump with. What's the difference? I, I, obviously, I know the contraction is much faster, and and there's an eccentric load there to keep you from collapsing. Yeah. What's what's different though in the practical sense of how you would use that or would you use it? It's a great question, uh, and I will I will probably answer in a very simple manner. I hope it's not disappointing. I think if you were to compare a supramaximal eccentric done with a back squat, okay, mm -hmm. and a supramaximal, so to speak, supramaximal uh, landing, so falling from a height that is much higher that you can jump off. Uh, there's a different level of perturbation of the system mm -hmm. that the easiest way for me to explain that is that squatting is a close kill where everything is very much predictable. The athletes know the path. Everything is set right. You just have to execute. Right. Whereas when you're falling from a box, every single attempt is different. There's more perturbation. There's more coordination right. needed between the two limbs. So it's, to some extent, is much more sport-specific. So I love that kind of eccentric training for athletes, and I do that a lot too. Uh, okay. I do every variation from like starting from the ground and landing on a tall box to decrease the eccentric amortization to the opposite, where you fall from a very tall box and all you want to do is just stop yourself in an athletic position. Mm -hmm. I think it's just much more functional and it can lead to a better carryover to like speed, power, and agility training than just squatting would do. So it's kind of like a, a different tool, maybe used in a similar phase or maybe used sequentially, I, yeah. I would suppose, with both of them. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, both of them would be something that you would probably do preceding the shock method uh, cycles there because that, that will that will uh, amplify or I shouldn't say amplify, accentuate the the athlete's ability uh to in the amortization phase of a plyometric exercise so now he's going to be able to get up off the ground quicker on a depth jump or whatever the case may be um so that's going to be an important and it's also it's important in two different ways in the plyometric and also like uh, in sports where change of pace and change of speed are important or being able to stop on a dime that eccentric is also going to play a very important role i mean that's exactly that's what it is yeah. right so that altitude drop with the super maximally centric is going to be very important in the athlete's ability to run, go one direction really fast and stop uh, on a dime. And, and, and hopefully the other person keeps going. That's kind of the idea. So, yeah, 
those are two, those are kind of somewhat misunderstood idea. The eccentric idea, I think, is misunderstood to some degree. And then the application thereof, I think, is probably even more misunderstood as to what its value is exactly and how to implement it uh, and uh, at the right stages with the right athlete. I, you know, I, that's just something that I gather as I listen, read other people and, uh, and, and talk to them. I, you, you can kind of see that it's either totally missing from the training. Or if it's in there, it's not applied as well as it probably could be. You know, not as not not as wisely, I think. Well, I I learned a couple things here today, so I like this. Uh, we got uh, quite a few chapters to go over, and we're gonna go. You and I are gonna go over them together on uh, more podcasts. But I wanted to just kind of give people an idea of what we're doing here. So so the idea of the book, uh, and I want you to correct me after I'm done here uh, with with this. But the idea of the book was to look at all of the concepts in power in the not just in the the specific context of velocity training. That's, you know, an enormous part. But these other uh, topics that you all play into that. This is the idea of actually developing power, not power training. Am I right? Like, so we're looking at you being able to exhibit power, not just necessarily the power training all the other things that go all the things that go into it right uh because there's other factors besides just the power training things that uh complement or have synergy with your velocity training well like it'd be jump training or um you know plyometrics things like this they're all synergistic and then they just all have to be applied at the right time in the right sequence in the right volume you know very very specific to get that result that you want uh it, for the athlete or, or the coach who's wanting uh, to develop those qualities, what's the book giving them? So it's a great question. And I'm sorry if I bring back the uh, answer to, again, uh, physics or biomechanics, but no, 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 the please. biggest picture. So power is the product of force time velocity. But we're not dealing with a machine. We're not dealing with an engine. We're dealing with the human body. And force involves the physio- physiology of muscle contraction. So in the, in, the, in the word force or strength comes hypertrophy or functional hypertrophy, comes muscle tendon stiffness. In the word velocity comes intramuscular coordination, intramuscular coordination. So the more you peel that these layers apart, the more you realize power is the outcome. But what matters is the recipe that brings you there. And the recipe is made by many ingredients, and they all have to come together. If one is, if you do too much strength, power is not going to come out right. If you do not enough velocity, power is not going to come out. If you only do barbell training and you don't do plyometrics, it's not going to come out right. You have to be able to combine in a like, coordinated manner all these different tools, use them within the domain of periodization, and create the perfect recipe for power. And that's what I hope the book is going gonna, is gonna to deliver. That's what I like about it, because I, I like the idea that, because I think people sometimes can get off onto one topic, like if you, uh, in velocity training, which is, it's obviously, it's a very critical tool. Uh, but then the next thing you know, that's all somebody's doing. It's yeah. just that. Uh, and that would be an error. It's good to look at that and take a deep look at it, like in the upcoming book with Dr. Mann. Take a deep look at that and understanding all the all the underpinnings there. But then also kind of understand, I think this is kind of where the book, your book kind of takes it as like, okay, that's a tool. Now let's look at the interaction 
of that tool with the other ones. It's almost like making a recipe. I'm looking at how these ingredients yeah. uh, mix with each other and how they fit together and then how you can elicit that ultimate response that you wanted, which yes. was, you know, the end goal of that technique. Uh, I want to say technique or that skill yep. uh, being exhibited more powerfully, not just chasing just a number in the weight room on a, a speed or what. Not that that's not important. It is important. It's very important. But that may not be the only thing that allows you to exhibit your skill in the most explosive, powerful manner. It's going to play a role. And the way that I've described sometimes with specialized movements and in the techniques is that there's kind of a conduit yep. uh, and it's wider. If we understand all of the different things, then we can really get that power out on the other end. But it could be blocked if we don't, you know, put it onto the skill. If we don't uh, develop, uh, you, you know, enough strength in advance, the conduit gets wider the more that we've developed all the other components. Is that is that right? One hundred percent. And as a matter of fact, when you were listing the different topics in the book, you mentioned the chapters on the metric of power development. That chapter alone is the byproduct of more than fifteen years of programming for athletes. That is the real recipe. That's where you all you bring everything together. Because what makes what makes a, a recipe unique is not the ingredients alone, it's the combination of the ingredients in the right quantity. Right. Because you can use the same ingredients to do two different kinds of dishes. It's just how you combine them in what quantity. And that's what right. the metric is. Like how much of each do you need to elicit the best interaction for your goal? And that's the book that took the most out of me. That's 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 where I started from to develop the book. And then I attached everything else to make sure that everything makes sense. I think that characterizes the book perfectly that it's it's an, it's this is somewhat more of an ingredient recipe book on how to use the different ingredients that we know to develop the improvement in the skill that we're looking for uh, empowering that. So so that is the way to kind of characterize that, that the best, I think. Uh, and, and so this is going to be valuable for everybody. I'm, I'm excited about doing it. Uh, I'm glad that that we uh, took it on and I'm glad that uh, we, we have you to ask more questions. So we're going to get together soon. We're going to do a couple several, several more podcasts. I'm going to ask you a ton more questions. Uh, I already went way over here running my mouth, but uh, <laughs> I, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed it and uh, hopefully everyone else, too. So thank you so much, Antonio. Looking forward to the book being released here in the next week or so, hopefully by the first of the year. Um, and uh, we're going to get together soon. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you.